All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We're back in the book of Acts, our series called The Spirit and the Church. It's going to take us a couple years to get through. Uh, We're back after a, a short break. We did a thematic series today. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Acts 15 begins, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us today, that you would enlighten us, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that that because of the power of your word and the working of your spirit, Lord, that we would all truly be changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was reading this, uh, this passage this week, getting back into the book of Acts, and it reminded me that um, I was not always bald. I was not always bald. I started off bald, very bald, very bald baby, very bald baby, very, very white, translucent, schmoo-like, if you know schmoo. you probably not, a very sl- small sliver of you know the cartoon schmoo. Anyways, I was a very hairless, ugly, creepy, cartoon-like baby. Um, no hair. But then I grew up, and I, as I grew up, I had hair. My, now, the, the heyday, the hair day, really, for me, was the 80s. In fact, if you were alive in the 80s, that was probably your, your, the best hair of your life, it was, it was the 80s, right? And, um, and because in the 80s, uh, I had long hair, like really long hair, and, uh, and I didn't have a lot going for me, right? I had very little going for me, but I, but I had good hair, right? Hair that got the attention of, 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 of girls. Like, they like, you know, I guess that was, the, that was the whole point, right? I wanted girls to notice my long hair. Uh, and then I became a Christian, and I kept the hair, right? Because that's a gift from the Lord. And uh, I remember I walked into a Bible church, uh, and I was, so I'm a, young, I'm a new Christian, I've got long hair, and I walk into a Bible church, a local Bible church. I won't tell you which one. Anyways, so, uh, so I, I, went to this, I went to this local Bible church, and I walked in. First time I walked in, first adult that greeted me was an elder who told me I should cut my hair. He doesn't know me, doesn't know anything about me. And, uh, and he, you know, he was... Being playful, but he was 100% serious, like Christians shouldn't have long hair. That was the first time in my life that I had encountered a kind of legalism. First time. It wouldn't be the last time. And what I would come to find out is that I didn't even need to run into races, uh, races. I didn't need to run into uh, 
this dangerous legalism in the world, I could run into it in my own heart. What I found out was that legalism isn't just a problem out there, it's a problem in here. And so I I want us to to talk a bit about legalism today as we look at this passage, these five verses, because the the principle here is, is important to grasp. Legalism is the most common and dangerous heresy that Christians are drawn to. Some heresies are are automatically offensive, right? You see them, and somebody suggesting that Jesus is not God incarnate, that's offensive. We're like, "That's, that's crazy, stupid. Who would believe that? Legalism feels good, can sound good, can resonate with those fallen parts of our very existence. So it is the most common and the most dangerous heresy Christians are drawn to. So we're jumping into Acts here, so let me give you the the general context of of what's going on. In case you weren't here, if you're jumping in new with us, the book of Acts begins with Jesus after his crucifixion and resurrection, telling his church, telling the disciples, listen, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth because I'm going to give you my spirit. And sure enough, Jesus ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, and they begin to witness, to evangelize, and Peter becomes sort of the point person, like the big dog, the big leader. And Peter goes around preaching the gospel, healing people, planting churches, and the gospel is spreading. It's it's like wildfire. It's incredible. And then the biggest persecutor of the church of the day, Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, uh, he becomes a Christian. He is converted. And after he is trained, Then the book of Acts carries on with him, and he goes on a missionary journey. He's sent from Antioch on this missionary journey, and so he and Barnabas go, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're planting churches, and they're making disciples, and as they're doing this, they are now reaching Gentiles with this gospel message, right? Gentiles, this is a big deal, right? Because Paul and Barnabas are Jewish brothers. Uh, They're preaching about a Jewish Messiah who fulfilled Jewish scriptures, And so it's likely, it makes sense, well, these are going to be largely Jewish people that are coming to faith in Christ, but they start to reach Gentiles, non-Jews, who are not raised with the scriptures. And so it's a great testimony to the spread of the gospel, the love of God for all people, bringing everybody together, Jew and Gentile, into one body. Trip ends, first missionary journey is over in chapter 14, and now they are back at Antioch, resting, in a sense, but they're preaching They're making disciples, they're doing their thing. And as they do this, trouble, trouble shows up like it always does. So here is our path today, okay? Here's where we're going. I need us to see in verse one that legalism will always show up. Wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the church exists, legalism will always show up. Then we need to wrestle with this call, right? That legalism must always be confronted It has to be confronted, challenged, and taken down. But then finally, in verse 5, we're going to see that legalism is actually very, very hard to destroy. In fact, we won't get rid of legalism until the resurrection. So, legalism will always show up. We see it in verse 1. Some men came down, right, came down to Antioch from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're saying, listen, um, we, we, we know what you're doing, Paul, but listen, uh, you're not preaching circumcision. You're simply preaching Jesus. People have to be circumcised. So who are they really talking about here? These guys aren't talking about the Jews because 
They already circumcised. (laughs) They're taking issue with these Gentiles trusting in Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit, but not being circumcised. And so these people that came down, they're saying, listen, no one can be saved. That's their word. No one can be reconciled to God. No one is forgiven. No one is a child of God unless they are keeping the law of Moses from the old covenant. They have to be circumcised. That's the argument. In other words, in order to measure up, you have to perform. You have to, to be accepted, you have to work for it in some capacity. And specifically what they're pointing to is circumcision. Now, this is legalism. It's a great example of legalism. But legalism, legalism can be a challenge to define because legalism takes different shapes, different forms. There are, I'm going to say there are three different kinds of legalism. All right, there's, there's hard legalism, and then there is soft legalism, and then there's vague legalism. And they're all very real, and you will run into them if you haven't already throughout your time of following Jesus. So hard legalism, right, is legalism of the first order. It's the most dangerous kind. Hard legalism says that you are only made acceptable by God by your works, at least in part. Your works, your obedience, your personal, moral, spiritual reformation, your efforts contribute to your standing before God, right? So the doctrine that we're talking about here is the doctrine of justification, right? You are justified in the sight of God, right? Forgiven of your sins and counted as righteous. That only happens, according to the legalist, if you obey. You've got to obey, Now, these guys here in verse 1 are arguing, well, you have to obey by virtue of being circumcised. If you do that, only then, with the grace of God and faith in Christ, will you be accepted. This is hard legalism. It is simply the doctrine of justification by works. This is the opposite of what Paul preaches, of what the gospel offers up from old covenant throughout new covenant, right? All of it is pointing to the reality that sinners are only made acceptable by God through faith in his promised deliverer. So there is hard legalism, preaching like you must perform if you're going to be accepted by God. It's the whole, if you do well, then you're going to live and be rewarded for it. Hard legalism. Soft legalism is different. Soft legalism is, is, what, is, is really what I encountered um, at the Bible church. Soft legalism is not arguing that God only accepts you when your works are good enough. Soft legalism is simply adding man-made rules to Scripture. Now, I know that no well-intentioned Christian would ever say, well, we're going to add some rules to the Bible, right? Nobody's, generally, they're not that dumb. If they're, they're certainly a cult if they're willing to admit that. But soft legalism acts as if they're traditions and acts as if their rules, their man-made rules are equal to Scripture. Their rules are essentially God's rules. And so you've encountered this before, right? There, there, will, there will have been people in your life, there are churches that would say, listen, you are not pleasing God, you are not honoring God or glorifying God if, you know, pick whatever silly man-made rule they have, Right, it might be like, well, you know, you, uh, 
Women have to wear skirts or dresses. They cannot wear pants or slacks. I know that's a really outdated old example, but that's one that, you know, I actually did here as a, as a young Christian. So th- there, are, there are these w- rules that we might come up with, and some of these rules can be fine, right? They can be fine so long as they are not used to oppress people as if they are God's rules. Sometimes we just do things because they are culturally appropriate. But to say that these rules are on par with God's rules is a kind of legalism. You're adding law. The only way we know what's right and what's wrong is by Scripture, right? And so to add to it, to say, well, it's wrong to do this, even though Scripture does not, by way of implication, or if, if it's not explicit, is a kind of legalism. So you've got hard legalism, you're justified or accepted based on your performance, at least in part. Soft legalism, when you add, act as if your rules, your man-made rules, are God's rules. And there's vague legalism. Vaguely, and that's a term that I'm using. It's, it's not the best term. I couldn't come up with anything better. Here's what I mean by vague legalism. It's when a church or a preacher will say that we are saved by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Our works do not contribute to our standing before God. They'll get that right. And they will not suggest that man-made rules are on par with or equal to God's rules. They won't do that either. But some churches and some preachers will present a vague legalism by only preaching the law in Scripture and not preaching the gospel. The Bible, the Bibles that you have, right, either on your phones or in your hands, those Bibles are essentially made up of both law and gospel, law being the commands of God. Right, the imperatives, the dictates, the, these, are the thing God, these are the things God wants you to do, law. And it's made up of gospel, the promise of God, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, reconciliation and communion with God. So there are laws, commands, right? And then there are promises, gifts. That's what we've got. And you've got to preach both. You have to preach the law and the gospel. Vague legalists like to camp out on law and seem to never make their way over to the gospel. I'll give you an example. I went to a, a, a church. I, this guy was an acquaintance. He was at this church, and the church had it going on, right? Like, everything was so well done. I was just super impressed, right? And uh, people were super nice. Everything was great. We're walking in. My family's walking in. We bring our kids, you know, and, and this is how I know it was like, a great church. I was so confident this is going to be a great church. It was because to drop off our little ones, they had to be put down a slide into the room. Like, I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. This is the best. Like, it's not a biblical thing. I just like it. Like, so the little kids go to their nursery or classroom, down a slide. It's super cool. I was like, it's going to be great. I knew the guy. I liked him. And so we go there, and he preaches a sermon on prayer. Now, this is good, right? It's a biblical topic. We're supposed to pray, right? God commands us to pray, uh, pray without ceasing. And uh, and so that's important. The disciples ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. It's that important. And Jesus is like, I got you. Here's how you pray. He actually teaches us how to pray. So this is a good thing to preach on. And so his message was, all law, you're supposed to pray. Here's how you're supposed to pray. Um, Here's what happens if you don't pray. And so it was all law. It was how-to, commands, imperatives, and it never got around to the gospel, which leaves us with what? Well, 
we're either going to be really confident that we're doing a great job if we don't have any self-awareness, or we're going to be really discouraged because we recognize, like, I don't pray the way that I'm supposed to. And so this guy doesn't believe that, that the law is what justifies us. He doesn't elevate man-made rules to the status of God's commands. But by not ever bringing us to the gospel, all we're left with is law. And we're left on our own to sort of figure out, what am I supposed to do with this law? And I'll just tell you, just, just to sort of get to the point here, what we need to hear is, here's how you're supposed to pray. We need practical rules and suggestions. We need to read good books. But we also desperately need to know that we will never pray well enough to be accepted by God. We will never pray well enough to be accepted by God. But God will always accept our prayers because we are united to his son, Jesus. And Jesus prayed perfectly every time in our place. Every time you and I lose focus and we're distracted and we can't finish or we forget to pray or we refuse to pray because we're being stubborn dummies, in every case that we fail in prayer, Jesus succeeded and he did that for us. We got to have the gospel because without it, the law is a burden too great to bear. So there's hard legalism, there's soft legalism, there's vague legalism. Legalism is essentially a misunderstanding in one way or another of both God's law and the gospel and godliness. Legalism muddies these waters without making distinctions. We make distinctions. We want to separate things and understand them properly. And understand God's law. Look, there are people that want to suggest we don't have anything to do with God's law. There are, no, there are no commands. There are no expectations. It's all grace. We just live in grace. And we know that this is not accurate because the Bible simply doesn't talk about God's commands and God's will for our lives in this way. But there are other people who want to suggest that God's laws are the very things that will save us if we keep them well. So what do we do with God's laws? In the Reformed tradition, we recognize that there are three uses of God's laws. Three uses. So when you see the commands, right, Sermon on the Mount, Ten Commandments, whatever, you see the commands of God, you should recognize, ah, you know what? There are three uses behind God's laws, right? We're going to be really brief here. So the first use of God's law, they like to call it the pedagogical use. Don't worry about that. Just say first use. First use of the law is it shows you that you are a sinner, that you don't measure up to God's standards, and that you need a savior, right? Because when you look at the law, what does it say? It says, it says, do not lust. It says, do not covet, right? It says, it says, do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery. And you know, if you look at them, if you're being honest, you've broken these laws. Maybe not because you broke them explicitly word for word, but in principle and in heart, you have transgressed Right, so the law shows us that we don't measure up, that we are sinners. And in doing that, it shows us that we need forgiveness and we need righteousness. We don't have forgiveness, we need it, and we lack the righteousness. We need that too. And so it prepares us for Christ, right? It's a tutor that guides us to Jesus. So the law is a gift in that way. It shows us our failings and it reveals to us our need for a savior. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law, people call it the, the, the civic use. It, it is that the law functions as a way of curbing or restraining sin through the threat of punishment. So there's two ways you can see this working out, right? So uh, the, the threat of punishment, the threat of punishment when it comes to God's law is hell, 
right? You transgress God's law, then you will be liable to the fire of judgment. You will be liable to God's wrath and justice. We understand that, right? We're all sinners and we're worthy of God's judgment. And then we see it working out in, uh, in the world, right? So uh, the reason I don't speed is not because I think it's morally wrong to go 75 miles an hour on Route 64 when there's nobody around. I don't think it's morally wrong to do that. I think it is morally wrong to, uh, to break established city guidelines because I've agreed to that by virtue of being a citizen here. So I, I don't think we should speed, but it's not because it's inherently wrong. It's mostly because I don't want to get a ticket and then have to explain that to my wife. So it cuts into other funds that go for fun stuff. So I don't speed, be, not because of a safety thing. I'm, I don't, I am the safety. I don't, we're not worried about safety. I'm not speeding because I don't want to get caught. I don't want to pay a penalty. And so even when it comes to God's law, right, the, the threat of God's wrath is supposed to be a cause for people to step back and consider the judgment that awaits them and look for grace and mercy. But even for the Christian, even for the Christian who's been forgiven, reconciled to God, the one who is at peace with God, even though the threats of God's law are no longer relevant to their souls, we don't fear hell. We're forgiven, reconciled, justified. The the threatenings that, that exist in the law against even the sins that we commit are still relevant and they still curb sin in that they remind us of what we deserve not what we're going to get. And in showing us the severity of our sins and what they actually deserve, it humbles us, gives us gratitude, and we respond in joyful obedience. That's the second use of the law. Third use of the law is simply this, the law of God remains a rule for godly living for all Christians. Just because you have been forgiven of breaking God's law does not mean that God's law is no longer relevant. It is. It still guides you. It's still appropriate for you to obey. It's okay to say, I am supposed to obey God. It's appropriate to say, I have to obey God. And it's not that, well, I have to obey God in order to be accepted by him. We are accepted in Christ. It's I have to obey God if I want to choose to glorify him in the way that I live. So legalism messes this up. Legalism misunderstands the uses of Scripture. It misunderstands the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news that we are saved by God's grace, that we receive that gift by faith. Let me just read one verse to you, Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that no one is justified I read this wrong every time this morning. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We maintain this. You are justified. That is, you are accepted. You, you are welcomed into the presence of God. You are forgiven and counted as righteous, not because of your works, but because of God's grace. Your works play no role in your standing before God. Legalism messes up the law, the gospel, and the very nature of godliness, Right? Listen, I put, up a, I put up a post on Instagram, and it was a picture, because that's what you're supposed to do on Instagram. It's not for long, lengthy diatribes. Instagram's about pictures. So I put up a picture of a skull, because I, you know, and, and then it says, it says legalism, and I'm like, yeah, because legalism kills. It's like a whole thing. And um, I made it on my phone. I was proud of it. And, uh, and this guy comes on, and he's like, 
he's arguing for legalism. He's like, you just, you got, what you guys call legalism is just obedience. So let's be really clear here. Um, obedience is good. Obedience is important. Obedience is required. God commands and demands that we are obedient. Obedience is not required for our standing before God. He doesn't love us more or accept us because of our obedience. Obedience is required if we want to glorify God in our daily living. So obedience is good. If, if we call one another to faith and good deeds, that's not legalism. For, for us to say, hey, do not get drunk on wine, that's not legalism. That's just obedience. Don't get drunk. Why? Because the scripture says it. If we were to say, you are not allowed to have a drink of wine, that would be legalism because the Bible says no such thing. So obedience is good and legalism messes this up. It muddies the waters. And you see, you see legalism throughout church history, right? You see it in the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees in the first century were taking their laws, their traditions, and elevating them up to the status of God's laws. So if people weren't keeping those traditions, they were sinning, right? So that's a soft kind of legalism. You can go to the fourth century, just fast forward ahead of the fourth century, and you got this guy named Pelagius, right? Pelagian, Pelagius had a whole host of bad theological issues going on. This guy was a heretic of the highest order, but he was also, in this, he was also a very strict legalist. And of course, he got spanked by Augustine. Uh, some people call him Saint Augustine in the fourth century. Skip ahead to the 16th century, right? 1500s, Protestant Reformation. Uh, the worst team in the Protestant Reformation uh, league were the Anabaptists, okay? The Anabaptists were the worst. For the record, Anabaptists are not Baptists, all right? Anabap we don't trace our heritage to the Anabaptists. We Anabaptists went heretical and died out. We trace our Baptists find our identity, right, our, our, our denominational heritage or that sort of a thing. We find that in the, the next century, right, 17th century in England. That's where we emerged. Anabaptists, though, had all kinds of problems ranging from, from Trinity to legalism. And you would be shunned and excoriated and treated very poorly if you were not behaving properly. You can just jump ahead to the 20th century. Now, at least in the 20th century, the fundamentalist movement, which started off good enough but quickly devolved into a, into a movement that was characterized by a number of errors, oftentimes legalism. The danger of legalism here, and wherever it has manifested itself, the real danger of legalism is that it is, it is calling for us to trust in ourself more than our Savior. That's fundamentally what's happening. It's why it's so dangerous. People think, like, oh, well, it's just, you know, legal. they're a little uptight. They're like, they're, they like their rules. That's not what it is. It's not liking rules. I like rules. Well, I like my rules. <laughs> I like my rules. That's not what it is. It's, it's a... It's a it's an evangelistic outreach that says, trust in yourself, in your works. That's what it is. We wind up trusting in ourselves and in our works rather than in our Savior and his works. It's exchanging saviors. Legalism is dangerous, and what it always does, right? Legalism will always either produce in us pride or despair. Always. Like I said, if you're not self-aware, it can lead to pride. Right? Legalists like legalism because it feels good if you know how to apply it, right? So you don't focus on the laws of God in order to make yourself feel good. 
You take the laws of God and you apply them harshly to other people and more gently to yourself. And in that, you feel pretty good, right? Because you look at other people who sin differently than you and you go, uh huh, <laughs> I don't do that. I don't do that. You know why? Because I'm better. I'm godlier. I'm more spiritual. I take God's law seriously. But they obviously don't. Legalism feels good if you know how to apply it. But if you are self aware at all and you pay attention to God's laws and you're you're being taught and you're convinced that your standing, your acceptance before God is based on how well you perform or obey, then you will despair. Because you will know just how corrupt your own heart really is. Legalism is dangerous because it displaces Jesus. Now I know in a sense no one displaces Jesus, right? He reigns, but I mean, it, it displaces Jesus in your thinking, in your estimation, in your hearts, in your faith. Legalism will always show up wherever the gospel is preached, but legalism must always be confronted, right? How do we confront legalism? Well, we, we see that it's happening here, right? As soon as it shows up. It says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So they got right to it. They stepped up and they confronted it. How do you confront legalism? Well, number one, you have to identify it. Right? You have to know what it is and what it isn't. Right? It's not enough to know what it is. Right? Well, it's, it, it's, it's teaching and preaching that, that people are accepted by God based on their performance. Right? You're justified by your works. Or it is like elevating man's laws to the status of God's laws. You also have to know what it isn't. For example, calling people to repent of their sin is not legalism. Calling one another to live righteous and upright lives is not legalism. You got to know what it is and it isn't. And you have to pay attention. You have to keep your eyes open. You have to listen carefully to what is being said and what isn't being said. What this means is, is you have to be a theologian to confront Heresy, and to confront this heresy in particular, you have to be a theologian, the best theologian that you can be, not the best theologian that somebody else can be, your best version of a theologian. You have to be that person if we're going to confront legalism, whether that's in our own hearts or in a church. Number two, if we're going to confront it, we have to call legalism out. We actually have to address the teacher and warn the people. Right? If there is somebody teaching legalism, right? this is an ungodly, dangerous doctrine that people are teaching, then you correct, you rebuke the one offering the teaching if you have the opportunity and the capacity to do so. Not everybody will have the opportunity or the capacity to do it, but if you do, if you're a theologian and you have the opportunity and capacity, you must confront that teacher and also warn the people. Let them know what is being said and what it means and where it goes wrong to call it out, which means you not only have to be a theologian, but if we're going to do this as Christians, right, as a church, we have to be a prophet. We have to say the hard things. You got to identify it. You got to call it out. But really, if you are going to confront legalism, you have to preach the gospel, right? It's not enough to just point out that something is wrong. You have to hold out what is true. You have to hold out the gospel because that's the thing that saves, if you only point out that there is an error in a doctrine, another errant doctrine can replace it. But if you preach the gospel, there is victory. 
So we preach the gospel, right? And in this context, we would go to a passage, many passages, but like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not of ourselves, not a result of works, right? It is all of God's grace. We receive salvation by faith alone, and then that empowers us to walk in God's ways and the works, the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So we identify legalism, we call out legalism, we preach the gospel in opposition to legalism, and we take it to leadership. If there is somebody, particularly in the church, who is preaching legalism, you should take it to leadership. This is what Paul does, right? After this debate, it says, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Why would Paul need to go? Isn't he like a super theologian? Isn't he like a super apostle? Super, isn't he like a super Christian? Truth is, he was an apostle. And yes, he did write much of our New Testament. Yes, he was a leader in the church, but he wasn't super anything. Filled with the Spirit, blessed of God. And even he knew what I need to do after I've confronted these people is go to leadership so that the church can speak officially with one voice on this issue. So they head up to Jerusalem to talk to the rest of the apostles and the elders. This is the function of the apostles and of elders in any church to, to protect and to guard the church from false doctrine and false teaching, to preach the, the gospel, to preach the whole word of God. Legalism must always be confronted, but it is true that legalism is hard to destroy. Um, it's... It's resilient. It's a resilient heresy. And it's one that Christians keep coming back to. Why? Well, I mean, you, you could look at it in two ways. It's hard to ultimately destroy legalism because we're just sinful people. And our hearts gravitate towards sinful principles, ideologies. But it's also because legalism in particular resonates with fallen human nature in a way that many other ideologies that are wrong do not. Like we realized earlier, legalism can feel good, right? It feel satisfying, it feels right. It, there's, there's something about us believing in ourselves above believing in God. There's something that feels good. There's something that is sinfully satisfying to trust in our own merits rather than the mercy and the merits of another. There's something about legalism that just feels like home to a sinner. So we tend to go back to it. We tend to drift. The danger of legalism is that it dishonors Christ and it destroys souls. That's not an overstatement. It's a blasphemy that buries the faith of a Christian who is struggling with these truths. Legalism dishonors Christ. It's a blasphemy. And we need to ask a very simple question. Am I a legalist? You see, like, because you would think, like, well, we can't be legalists, right? Right? Because we're like serious about the Bible 
and uh, we're, you know, we're Reformed Baptist tradition, and we know what the three uses of the law are. And pastor just preached the whole thing on legalism. We can't be legalists. And look at him. He's got tattoos and smoked cigars. No way we can have legalism in this church. But I, I struggle with legalism. Like the problem with legalism is not that it's out there. The problem with legalism is that it, it starts up inside our own hearts. Be serious about it when you ask yourself, am I a legalist? Let me help you. Ask yourself, what is your confidence to approach God intimately in prayer or worship? What is your confidence? What makes you feel right? What makes you feel ready? What makes you feel acceptable? The answer is supposed to be Jesus, right? We all know the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but for a lot of us, it's not Jesus. Man, here's how it works for a lot of us. I, uh, let's say, I'm having a bad week. And by bad week, I just mean I'm sinning a lot, right? So let's say I'm having a bad week. I've been selfish and short-tempered and irritable. I've been lustful and angry. And what, like, I've just been awful all week. And now I want to pray. Now I'm supposed to pray. Now I'm supposed to go to worship, whatever it is. And how do I feel? I feel unworthy. I feel gross. I feel dirty. God's moving in me to pray, to repent, to come back to him. But I'm feeling like I don't want to pray. I don't want to sing because I'm too dirty. I'm unacceptable somehow. My sins have made me unacceptable. So what will make me feel better? I'll tell you. Two days of consistency. That'll make me feel better. Two days of not committing those sins. Two days of straight and narrow. Two days of being a good boy. That will make me feel better. And now I've gone two days and I haven't been doing those things. Now I feel like I can approach God. That is legalism. That's trusting in my works. That's trusting in my performance and not in Christ. It's admitting I don't accept your grace. I do not believe in your justifying work through Christ. I believe in myself and in my ability to make myself presentable before you. That's legalism. The problem is in our own hearts. Oh, by the way, another question you can ask yourself is, how are you judging other people? Like, do a deep dive on that. How, not if you are, you are all judging other people, right? Please say no, I'll put you on blast. You are judging people and I am judging people. We all do it. In fact, you're supposed to do it, by the way. You're supposed to judge, but you're supposed to judge people righteously, fairly. You're supposed to judge people mercifully even. How do you judge them? See, the legalist the tendencies of us is to judge others more harshly than we judge ourselves, to be more critical of others than we are of ourselves. But the person who has been gripped with the gospel knows that they are the most sinful person they know because they don't know anyone as well as they know themselves. And they don't know anyone's sins as well as they know their own sins. So they recognize themselves as, like Paul said, the chief of sinners. But the legalist won't admit that. Legalists will judge others more harshly to make themselves feel better. Are you a legalist? The reality is, sometimes you are. The cure for legalism uh, is rather simple, really. The cure for legalism is, is Christ. It's Christ. 
his person, and his work, right? See, you, you do need righteousness, and your hope before God is righteousness. It's just not your own righteousness. You are saved by perfect obedience to God's law, but just not your own. You can't. It doesn't work. So your hope is righteousness, but it's Christ's righteousness, The cure for legalism is Jesus, received by faith alone. Let me just read one passage, and we'll close it out. Back to Romans 3. We read this earlier in the service. So now, considering legalism and what what we've been talking about. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. By faith, we are justified. We are accepted. So the exhortation for all of us is a very simple very clean one. It's a clean exhortation for unclean people. Recognize your sin. See the beauty and the weight of God's law and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your standing, your acceptance before God. God holds out grace to all who are willing to take it. And the only way to take it, the only way to receive it is by simply believing And by believing, you are forever welcomed and accepted by God. You always have full and free access to the Father. He always sees you as his child. Recognize the tendency, the danger of legalism, but live in the reality of God's grace that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to teach us Today, this afternoon, this evening, throughout this week, move us to read your word and to dwell on the truths. And Lord, the the truths of your word that that remain in our hearts and minds, we pray that you would use those to continue to, to take root and to bear fruit in our lives. We pray, Lord, that Jesus would be everything to us and that because of that, we would preach Jesus to everyone around us with the hope that they would come to know the God who makes us, loves us, and saves us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.